0: Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the fascinating research being done by folks uh, in the Hagley Library Historical Collections. One scholar is joining me today, Kelsey McNiff, Associate Professor of English at Endicott College, whose book project is tentatively titled, eight people of some talent with so much virtue, a portrait of the DuPont family at their arrival in the United States. Kelsey, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: Oh, sure. Let's sort of dive into the uh, big picture. What is your project about?
1: Well, my project is about the history of the early DuPont family, um, really with a focus on their experiences in 18th century France prior to their arrival in the United States. And I first became interested um, in the DuPonts in sort of an indirect way. Um, I was working at the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe and I was reading the papers of another woman um, who had en- emigrated from France to the United States in 1792, um, Marie-Jean Dautremont. And she had originally come to the United States from France, settling in a um, French colony named Asylum in Pennsylvania. And then she ended up in Angelica, New York. And this is relevant because when she was in Angelica, she was friends with Josephine Dupont and Victor Dupont. And so, as I was reading her correspondence, I would hear about the Duponts. I would um, hear about Victor going to re- visit his brother Irène, and so I became curious about who this Dupont family was. And pretty quickly realized that Irène had started this gunpowder business. It evolved into the modern day Dupont. And um, I begin with that because really, when I became interested in the project. I became curious about the family's life um, and their experiences in old regime France and under the French Revolution. And um, as I started reading about them, I just found the characters really fascinating. You know, there's a lot that's been written about Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours, the family patriarch, um, who our audience might know was a well known economist, um, a publisher, a politician um, in revolutionary France, Um, his son Victor, who was a minor diplomat and EI, of course, um, who, as is well known, studied under Lavoisier and helped manage the publishing business during the revolution and started the company. Um, And I thought that hearing about their lives just really helped me kind of imagine and explore that period in French history. Um, And as As I read more, I noticed that in a lot of the literature, their journey to the United States in 1799 is a story that's sort of told and retold. Um, And it became clear to me that the way the narrative was constructed um, really focused on Pierre Samuel, Victor, and EI, and only had sort of passing references to their wives, Francoise Dupont, Pierre Samuel's second wife, Josephine Mm -hmm. Dupont, who I've mentioned, and Sophie Dupont. And, um, you know, the the women might get mentioned briefly um, and they're there as wives and mothers. We might get a quick biographical sketch, but we really don't see them as individuals. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. similarly, um, the in-laws, Julienne and Jean-Xavier, Bureau de Pussy, who's Francoise's daughter and her son-in-law, Are mentioned, sort of, we know that Francoise and Jean Xavier go ahead to America to find a home. You know, we know that um, Jean Xavier is involved in the business venture, but they just get the quickest of mentions. And um, as you mentioned, I'm an English professor and I specialize in um, the field of rhetoric and composition. But I have sort of an unusual background for an English professor because I began my career as a historian and Mm -hmm. I did my doctorate um, in modern French history. So one of the things I'm very interested in is um, a topic that sort of sits at the intersection of those fields and we can refer to that as a topic of um, historical memory. Mm -hmm. So why why do communities remember some events in their past and not others? Why um, do some people's get some people's stories get told and remembered, and others sort of get forgotten? So I became really interested in sort of the, the narrative of the Dupont family journey and thinking about who's included in those books that's been that have been written and who's kind of been left out, and and why and what were their experiences? And so. Um, when I first came to the Hagley on my exploratory research grant, um, I really came with that goal of um, saying, you know, what would it look like if we don't only focus on these three men who had these yeah. interesting lives and their experiences have been really well documented, but we also integrate and balance biographical narratives of the other family members who also were an important part of this family's journey and who themselves have really kind of interesting experiences that can help us learn about 18th century France as well.
0: Oh, that's great. Could you perhaps um, sketch the background of uh, these family members in France, particularly uh, the women, insofar as you've been able to uncover their stories?
1: Sure. Um, So one thing that I found when I started looking into it more was um, even though the Um, Josephine and Sophie, Victor and EI's wives, weren't prominently featured in the, um, we can say, the historiography of the DuPont Corporation that's interested in the origins of the company or in other DuPont family members' biographies. You know, they have been the subject of um, some interest. Um, It's just sort of been kind of separated from that. Um, So there was a dissertation that was written um, that explored the DuPont family members' kind of immigrant identities that talked about some of the Francoise, excuse me, about Josephine and Sophie's background. There's also been some work with um, Josephine's um, interest in fashion and her correspondence with Margaret Monique Galt. Um And Bessie Dupont, as some of your audience might know, um, in the 1920s transcribed and translated um, all of EI's correspondence, which includes these wonderful letters from Sophie. So I mentioned that to say that it's, it's not that we don't know anything about them yet. So um, Josephine um, was the daughter of what we might call a sort of more impoverished aristocratic family. And she was very, very proud of her noble heritage. Um, in her memoirs, she traced it back generations and generations. And in 18th century France, um, if you're a member of the nobility, the you know, further back you can trace that noble heritage. Um, sort of the more esteemed it is. Um, but she was orphaned at a relatively young age. She was born um, in Stenay, France, and she moved to Versailles as a girl. Um, her parents both had passed away by the time she was about 10 or 11. Um, she was educated at a school in Versailles for um, other girls of the nobility and similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. And she um, was basically dependent both on sort of income that had a small income that had been left to her. And then eventually also um, a stipend uh, from the queen. And when the revolution breaks out, um, Josephine um, will leave Versailles. She'll go first to um, a convent in Paris where her sister is. But as we know, one of the first things that the leaders of the revolution did was um, seize church property, And so she goes um, to um, Switzerland, um, but only for a period of time. Um, According to her, some of the work that's been um, done on her, she she didn't want to um, stay there permanently. She didn't want to go further east as Mm. others uh, were doing who were opposed to the revolution. She didn't want to be considered an emigre. So she came back to France um, and she settled with um, one of her half sisters, in a town called Ferriere. and um, that's where she met Victor Dupont. And so Josephine I, is this interesting. Um, she's just an interesting character, where she really gives us a window into um, sort of the life of a young noblewoman and someone who was not in favor, you know, of the revolution. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, we know, for example, when she and Victor began courting, she didn't want to have a civic marriage which was basically the law at the time. So they had a secret marriage by the local village curé, and then they had the civic marriage. Um, and she and Victor will um, go to South Carolina when he has a, an appointment as a diplomat there in Charleston. Um, and um, so for me, a sort of Hearing more about her biography, again, you can see how already it starts to add to our understanding of kind of this moment of the family and the family milieu um, because she has a really distinct background um, and experience at that time compared to um, Pierre-Samuel um, and his family. Um, Sophie, EI's wife, um, We know a lot about her life once she and EI were married. Um, She lived for the most part um, at a farm that they owned, Bois de Fosse, and she chronicled her daily activities both, you know, raising her children and also helping manage the farm. Um, So that part of her life gives us some good insight um, into women's experiences at the time and um, how active women were were involved Mm -hmm. in sort of household management and economics in a sense, and sort of that component of the family business. Um, I wish we could find out more about Sophie's background. I've, I've tried and I've tried, and there's really um, only a little that I've been able to come up with. We, we know that um, her family had come to Paris from Metz. Um, it's reported that her father was either a tradesman or a shopkeeper. Haven't been able to find more information. We know that um, she and I, she and E, I met in Paris. Um, and when he was trying to get his father's permission to marry her, her status, sort of as a petit, you know, petit bourgeoisie, was, was 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 a point of contention. Um, it was seen as sort of marrying the um, sort of um, out of class um, and. Um, Yet the the correspondence between EI and Sophie really seems like was a real love match. Um, and we can talk more maybe in, in a moment about some of the sources that I found in that regard. Um, Francoise, um, I find to be a fascinating character, and there is hardly anything about her in the literature on the DuPont family. We you, you we read book after book, and you'll see mentioned that she was, um, the uh, widow of um, Pierre Poivre, who um, was actually a very well-known French explorer um, who spent um, time in the Near East, was known being involved in the spice trade. Um, um, but but nothing is really written about her, or she's referred alternately as a sort of a rich widow, you know, who, who thought Pierre Simon was a genius. But um, even though there hasn't been much written about her here, there's actually been interest in her in France. And Mm. um, I've I've been able to find other collections of, you know, um, manuscript collections, archival materials with a lot of her writing. And she just had this really interesting um, life that opens up a whole nother dimension of thinking about French society at that time. Um, She was from Eastern France near Lyon. she married Pierre Poivre when she was uh, 16. And he was, you know, um, you know, decades older than her. I think he was like 20, 30 years older than her. And um, he'd already had this whole experience in life as an explorer and he'd come back home. And I believe his brother was married to her aunt. So there was this personal connection. And when she's 17, um, again, recently married, she's pregnant with her first child. Poivre, her husband, is appointed to be um, a colonial administrator in the French colony of Ile de France, which now is known as Mauritius. Mm. She leaves home and she goes to um, board a ship (laughs) um, at the sort of through the French East India Company at port um, in, in Western France. And she goes to Mauritius and she lives in Mauritius. Um, again, Ile-de-France at the time from 1767 until 1772. And that's where she has her first two children. Her husband becomes intendant of the island. He's known as an early environmentalist. And she has a correspondence with a famous French writer, um, Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, who writes his very famous novel, Paul et Virginie. And she's thought to be sort of the, um, the model for the heroine of the novel. Um, and then she comes back to France in 1772, and she'll raise her family um, at the family's property near Lyon called La Freita. And Victor Dupont uh, will go and visit them. Uh, when he's on his tour as a young man trying to find a career, one of his stops is to see the poivres at La Freita. And so we have letters that he wrote to his dad while he was there. I could go into more detail on her. She's very interesting. Um, but eventually she, she and Pierre Samuel will will connect again in the 1790s after um, her husband has passed away and she wants to publish some of her husband's writings. Um, and she and Pierre Samuel will marry um, in 1795. So, so what I'm trying to sort of sketch here is that then, you know, when this decision is made for the family to emigrate, it's really conceived with sort of the broader conception of family. Um, at the time, there's sort of Francoise and her family and her son-in-law, uh, Jean-Xavier, Bureau de Pussy. Um, he and he was a military engineer. He also was a politician during the French Revolution, like pierre Samuel served as president of the French National Assembly. And in August, 1792, um, when the Tuileries Palace is stormed and the National Convention is declared and Lafayette flees the company, excuse me, the country, Jean-Xavier Bureau de Pussy is one of the handful of people who leaves with him. Mm. So Jean-Xavier spends 17, from about September 1792 until the summer of 1797, he's imprisoned, primarily in Austria. And so Francoise in this period as her daughter, Julienne, who has a baby who hasn't met her father, right? jean Xavier in prison, he's released in 1797, but he can't come back into France. So um, I'm really interested both in kind of foregrounding and sort of recovering and telling those women's stories and telling them in that way, both so we can learn about women's experiences in that era, but I'm also really interested and how um, um, telling the the presenting that kind of narrative can also enrich or complicate or sort of better help us contextualize what we already know about the Dupont early Dupont family and their history.
0: And that's fantastic. Um, what materials at the Hagley Library did you look at to help you uncover this story?
1: Um, so. I'm hesitating, because there's so much. Um, (laughs) One of the things I came on the exploratory research grant to say, uh, to see what there was. And even after, you know, pouring over the online catalog and and seeing what might be available, I I still was astounded at just how extensive the manuscript collection is. Um, And I think that's something that's just helpful for your audience to know. Um, There's the Longwood Manuscript Collection, which has EI, Victor, Pierce-Samuel, Josephine, everyone's correspondence. And there's a Winterthur Manuscript Collection, which is just incredibly extensive. Um, Some of that, as I mentioned, has, has already been transcribed and published. So I focused less on going through, for example, the correspondence, Um, of um, Sophie and E.I. in that era, because I know there's already a printed version. Mm -hmm. You know, similarly, um, it was really exciting to see um, Josephine's sort of um, autobiography, if you will, her memoirs um, in her own hand to see those volumes. Um, And that's something I'm going to look at more closely. And some, but but some of that also has already been discussed also by Bessie Dupont in a, a volume about Victor and, Josephine, but there were some things that really stood out um, as they were helpful or surprising. Um, On that topic of of E.I. and Sophie, for example, um, there's a a letter in the volume, Bessie Dupont volume, it's a long letter where um, E.I. and Sophie have decided they wanna marry and E.I. is trying to persuade his father. Um, that that he not only is ready to be married and he kind of has a plan and his work will be steady, but also that sort of um, convincing him of Sophie's virtues and why she would also be a good wife. And so the, that letter is in the book, but when I was looking at the manuscript collection, I found that EI had done a draft of the letter, like a first draft of the letter, and you could see and so, as an English professor who teaches composition, this is something that was really wonderful to find. You can see um, his, you know, him, him drafting ideas, crossing things out, you know, redoing it, and really working through kind of what he wanted to say. And when you read the letter itself, it's very like sort of modern style of argumentation. He's sort of making claims and presenting evidence. And so that draft kind of gives us a sense of that thoughtfulness. Um, and also how it really mattered to him. And so then when you see the final version, the final draft in a sense, it's so neat. Um, It's so um, clear. Um, It's, it shows a lot also about him thinking about his father as the audience, you know and what his father would expect and how he can really present it um, in a personal way. And so it was really things like that that, Kind of capture my imagination and help me really imagine these individuals and humanize them. Another thing related to E.I. and Sophie, I was very surprised to find um, in the Bessie Dupont's letters, I thought she did all of all of their letters, but I found that there's a whole collection of letters that she didn't include, which were their letters that they sent to each other before marriage. She started her 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 book with the letters once they were married. So there are all of these like love letters that they wrote to each other. And there's so many of them that um that you have in your collection. And they're these little sort of squares of paper. You can imagine they're in small pieces. And um they are one of the things I loved about them is you can see where they were folded so you can see there are little pieces of paper that would have been folded into quarters or into eights so they would be just the right size that you could hold in your hand or fit in a pocket right as opposed to a more formal letter with its address and its stamp and so those mm-hmm. were really fun to find and that's again something I'm excited to look through more and more detail um, And then I'd say other things that stood out and that um, I I know will be really valuable. Again, where I've I've found, um, you know, source material related to Francoise's life and other archival collections, Um, but Hagley has a lot as well. Um, There's um, letters that she sent um, to Victor and I and to Sophie and Josephine, various points, for example, in April 1799 when she and jean Xavier are preparing for their voyage to the United States she sent a whole series of letters to the family members um, just telling them she's thinking of them and things she's sending to them and she wrote these lovely letters to EI and Sophie's daughter Victorine kind of reminded me of the kinds of letters my mom sends to my to my children you know to her grandchildren. they're just really loving and doting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also just some great material that really helps us um, also understand their role in the business venture, you know, mm-hmm. as investors, um, Pierre Senville sending um, instructions to her and to Jean-Xavier, um, kind of about work they're going to be doing with updates on how um, financial dealings in Paris to wrap things up. Um, and so there's, there's just a lot that really brings um, those different individuals to life. And it it helps us see that their absence in a lot of the existing scholarship, it's not because there isn't documentation. Um, In fact, there's some really interesting material. It really helps us see how kind of the the narratives that have been constructed and repeated um, sort of do in part to, the, the interests of, of those historians, the questions they were asking, you know, then sort of what was relevant from, from their perspective. Um, and um, I, I, I look forward, honestly, to continuing to work with the material. Um, I, I, I will, as I'm writing, um, I'll be continuing to be going through and things that I've scanned or that I've brought back with me. You know, a lot of the work of translation and transcription will will be continuing. So, so to, You know, so I might have more to report later uh, mm-hmm. in terms of others.
0: Wonderful. Um, how has the trajectory of your project changed over time? Perhaps particularly as influenced by uh, having access to the materials at Hagley.
1: Um, by trajectory, do you mean? Um, sort of timeline or do you mean more um, kind of my own interests or, or goals?
0: Yeah, your interest goals, uh, the questions you're asking, the d- direction, so to speak, that you're uh, taking yeah. your work.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, as I mentioned, when I first came to the Hagley on my exploratory research grant, um, and as you noted, for example, in the um, sort of title of my, my project at the time, I really was imagining that the way I could address what I saw as those gaps in the historical record might be to have a book project that would try to integrate and sort of balance the narratives of these eight family members as a way to kind of add in um, what hadn't been there before. And when I got to Hagley and and was working more of the material and as I've continued to reflect on on what I found there, um, it has sort of shifted. my goals and and for a few reasons one is um on a practical level because of the extensiveness of the material um and the range of topics individuals experiences kind of raise i decided that it would be um challenging to have one volume kind of talk about everybody and to be able to do it in a meaningful way that readers could also follow and keep track of things, if you will. <laughs> um, but the other thing was that when I was there and I was working in the archives, I really found that I was most drawn to these women's experiences. And I really found that they, a lot of the material kind of brought them to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, in my for my speaking just for myself, I know, um, When I first began studying French history, I actually had found the history of the 18th century and the French Revolution less accessible than some other periods in French history. I think perhaps because the way it was taught sort of focused more on sort of social and political history. Um, and, And I found that in working with these materials and learning more about these women's stories and seeing these really everyday moments that I think we can empathize with and and relate to even though their lives and the circumstances of their lives were so different from ours, it really felt like it kind of opened a window into this historical period and sort of I think created an opportunity where we can really learn a lot not only about these women but about kind of women's lives in 18th century France Um, and I I realized that that piece um, that goal of um, better contextualizing um, these women's stories because as I mentioned before they're kind of here's a brief summary of their lives but they don't situate them in their historical context I think better contextualizing them and talking about their experiences in light of the historical context really creates an opportunity um, for for readers to learn about and explore that period. And and also, I realized that my interest in addressing that gap or that sort of silence, if you will, in the historical record, it really was motivated by um, wanting my interest in the women's stories in particular. And and so I found that the way it's kind of shaped the project um, is that it's made me focus more on that goal of foregrounding um, the the women's stories and thinking about how that both allows us to kind of imagine and learn about this period. And also, as I mentioned before, how does it also allow us to kind of maybe think in new ways and enrich our understanding of, of the early DuPont family
0: Um, itself. Kelsey, thank you so much for taking the time to share your work and I can't wait to learn more as as, uh, you bring the project full circle.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Greg. Thanks so much for having
0: me. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, to the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, why don't you join us online at Hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.